The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Through 26. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of the time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he came up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friends, Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you for he did not know what she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is this cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them, and he said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. You may be seated. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Such a sweet little story for us to dive into Advent. 
before we uh, deal with such an important text, I want to let you know why we're studying it. Um, first of all, uh, the Matthew's genealogy, which Sammy just sang for us, mentions five women. Uh, and that was unheard of in the time of counting the lives and uh, tenures of kings. And yet, he mentions five women. And it's important to see how in that way it dignifies these women. Uh, it demonstrates how these women are co-image bearers with men. And so it's important that as we work our way to Christmas, we work our way to the birth of Jesus, that we look at and study these five mentioned women in Matthew. And this is the first one we'll look at, Tamar. Um, the other thing that I want uh, you to see, as we grow together as a church, I want to help you to be able to um, understand what's going on in the Scriptures. I want you to be a nuanced Christian. And so I want to say a couple of things just to help set the tone for what we're going to study. The first thing is, is that not everything that is mentioned in Scripture is promoted in Scripture. Not everything that's mentioned in Scripture is promoted in Scripture. And by that, it means it, this story isn't um, promoting daughter-in-laws to hide and trick them and seduce them into having a baby with them. Just because the Bible is telling you an authentic historical story doesn't mean that it's promoting something. And that's really important. Just like Solomon has 700 wives, the Bible's not telling us to go and find all those wives. Or The Bible will historically mention slavery as it was a part of the culture and the time in the Bible uh, condemns thoroughly and holistically slavery as it stands, and yet it will comment about slavery and how slaves should act because it's, it's condescending to the time in which it exists. And so I just want you to be able to read this, not with our modern eyes, but just with some sense that just because something is in the Bible does not mean that it's promoting it specifically. Um, <clears throat> and then also there's this sense that the Bible is archaic, especially regarding women that just like all of history has been cruel to women, the Bible is cruel to women, and it's archaic, and it's outdated. And I, I really want you to see, as we go through this study, these weeks of looking at these women, these mothers of these women, these mothers of Jesus, I want you to see that the Bible has an extraordinarily high view of women. That the Bible takes great pains to show us that Jesus values and appreciates women that even though that there are ugly historical cultural realities in which these women live their lives, that Jesus dignifies women. And I don't want that to get lost in some of the uh, cultural uh, lapse that we don't quite get everything that's going on. So, first of all, just because the Bible doesn't, uh, because the Bible says something does not mean it's promoting it. And second of all, don't be fooled, the Bible has a very high view of women. So let's pray and ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Lord, would You have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank You and I praise You for Your goodness to us. And I pray that You would work in these few moments. It's such a difficult and weighty and nuanced text. But I ask for a few moments of concentration that by your Holy Spirit you would move and change us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. 
Amen. Have you ever been telling someone a story and realized that the story is way more dark uh, than you initially got into it from? Like Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. And you're like, oh, come on, you know this. It's about those unsupervised children who are playing near an open well and one of them has a concussion. And you're like, wait, hold on, that, that story got away from me. It was darker than I intended it to be. Or perhaps uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know about you, but I will certainly be watching It's a Wonderful Life in the next 30 days or so. And if you ask people, what is your favorite movie, Christmas movie? So many of them will say, It's a Wonderful Life. We'll just gather around the children and we'll, we'll pop up some popcorn and we'll sit there and we'll watch this sweet story about a man who tries to kill himself because he's in financial distress. And you're like, wait, wait a second, that story is darker than I thought it would be. But you see, both in, in this case, it, it shows that um, things can actually be brighter because a story starts so dark. Things can actually bright be brighter because a story starts so dark. Let me give you one more example. There's this world movie called World War Z. It's got Brad Pitt in it, and it's actually a movie about zombies and how um, this virus is taking all over the world, and if they don't find a cure for this virus everyone's going to turn into zombies. And it's actually kind of eerie watching it right now in the global pandemic. But one of the things that happens is they send Brad Pitt, sort of the military bodyguard, to go get this guy, this Harvard grad virologist who's going to go figure out just what we need to do to inoculate ourselves from all of these zombies. And he's the right guy. They're saying, if there's anyone who can save us, it's this guy. And then as they're, Brad Pitt's taking them in to sort of figure out where patient zero is, the guy steps off the plane, trips, shoots himself with his own gun, and dies in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And you're like, hold on. That was the guy. That was the guy. That was the guy who was going to save the world. The story is dark. And so the light is going to mean a lot more. Well, that's the picture that we have here. Is I, I know it's lost with all the names and all the genealogies, but I want to show you this. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. It's the fourth person. Abraham's children are supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. Everyone is supposed to know who the living God is because of Abraham's children and Isaac's children and Jacob's children and Judah's childless. He has no heir. And so right at the beginning, we're already supposed to be as the audience panicking that the hero's not going to be born. There's not going to be a hero because of this, this person, Judah, who's acting however he wants to act. There's supposed to be a hero of the story and he's not even going to be born. And that's the point. Because things are so dark in the history of Israel right now. You can't even envision that they could ever be light again. And that's what's going on here. See, we all see struggle to see God move in excruciating times and against personal rebellion and sin, but we must trust that He can move through cultural breakdowns and sinful breakdowns and personal breakdowns. Let me say it like this, friends. The point of the story is that the story will go on. The point of the story is that the story will go on. It'll go on despite personal moral failure. So glance with me if you have your Bibles, verses 1 and 2. The, the story will go on despite personal moral failure. We'll start with this. 
Verse 1 and 2, Judah's line is in danger. So remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Not Joseph, the bright and shining star that we're going to learn about later. Judah. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Agilom named Hirah. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to another son named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son, and she named him Shelah. Judah got a wife, or heir, his firstborn, and named her Tamar. What I want you to see in this is that Judah's line is in danger. Judah is supposed to be the father of many nations. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Judah is supposed to be the line that leads us to Jesus Judah has been told over and over again, do not marry Canaanite women. We are supposed to carry the line of Israel all the way till Jesus, and then Jesus will be the hope and the light of the Jews and the Gentiles. He has been told again and again, do not marry Canaanite wives. He's heard it in 24.3. He's heard it in 28.1. He's heard it in 35.22. Chapter 34, do not give your sons to Canaanite women. And he's saying that so that those people, religion won't blur and mesh with the God of the Bible and so that there won't be some muddled understanding of who God is and who He's coming for. But He does it anyway. Not only is He wicked, He doesn't really take seriously the fact that He doesn't have an heir for Abraham and soon for, for Jesus to come. His family's wicked. He's, he's a bad dude. Judah refused to honor the command of leveret marriage. What that means, and I know it's a little bit lost on us because the whole thing sounds weird, but in those days, inheritance and being the firstborn or, or, or the, um, the one who would carry the line forward, if you die and you don't have a child and you're the older brother, you're the one who's carrying on the line, you're supposed to have another brother of yours marry your bride and that when you have a child, that child is actually the son and named after the initial brother who died. It's as if the line will continue with him even though he's no longer alive. And Onan goes, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want it. Because if that line dies off, then my line will be the one that sends forth the family name. I'll be the patriarch. And so his sons are refusing this this rule, this law, and it's important that you understand this law, again, to the point about women, is a protection for women. It's a protection for women. Women were um, subjugated to men in every way. They couldn't testify in court. Women had no rights and no security, no protection, no economic future ahead of them, except at that time through their husbands. If their husbands die, to protect women, God puts in in plan, this, this says this is how we're going to protect women and children in this, in this world with a dead husband. We're going to have the brother marry her. He's going to take on the responsibility of this family. And Judah refuses to do that. Look in verse 6, 7, and 8. Judah took a wife for his heir's firstborn, her name was Tamar. But heir Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. That's that thing we were just talking about, leveret marriage. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. 
because it's going to be counted as Judah's brother, excuse me, Judah's firstborn son, heir. It's going to be his offspring. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now listen to this. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house. Go away, Tamar, till Shelah, my son, grows up. And then the quote stops, and he says, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah's already not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's already worked uh, to sell his brother into slavery, Joseph. Made his brother a slave. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing with his own life. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing in the sense of who he's marrying. And he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing in the sense of who he's finding for his kids to marry. If all that's not enough, the line has to go forward so that we can have Abraham's blessing, that we as God's people would be a blessing to the nations, the ones who are far off. It's not going to go forward, and Judah doesn't care, and he does this wicked thing of keeping his own third son from Tamar. Why? Because he thinks she's trouble. He's like, look, I've got these two sons. Both have been married to Tamar. Both are dead. Something's wrong with this woman. Never for an instant occurs to him that maybe his sons are so wicked because he's so wicked. It's just easier to blame somebody else with when we encounter brokenness. Derek Kidner says, Tamar was ill-omened. Meaning, he's, she's the reason that all this is happening. He's sort of blaming her. And the, the cherished royal line will not continue because he won't do what he's called to do, which is give up his son so that the line would continue. He's being selfish. And there's no protection for her. She couldn't get a job. She couldn't get a spouse. The Bible actually never comments on the morality of her decision to trick her father-in-law into impregnating her. It never comments on that. Because that brokenness is part of a larger systemic brokenness that she didn't have what she needed to survive. She didn't have what she needed for the line to go on. And so she did what she had to do. Now, does the Bible say, try and sleep with your father-in-law when you get a chance? No. It's saying she acted in courage in order to save the line, ultimately, that leads us to Jesus, when the system around her was so broken it couldn't do anything for her. Here's the point. Remember what he does when he finds out that she's pregnant? He wants to burn her. Never mind the fact that he's been acting creepy and hateful and wickedly. When he finds out that she's, in quotes, acted as a prostitute, he says, burn her. And what that shows for us, for you and for me in this, in this odd Christmas story, is that we are much more comfortable staring at and pointing at other people's sin than we are realizing what's going on in our own hearts. It doesn't bother him that widows are going to be taken advantage of and disappear. That the line will be messed with. That she will have no money. That she will have no one to marry her. She will have no one to care for her. None of that bothers him. But sin in her life, that's what really bothers him. What I want you to see is this. 
if you are growing in grace, your sin will bother you more than anyone else's sin will. If you are growing in grace, your sin will bother you more than anyone else's sin will. Not because you're blind to the sins of others. Not because you're blind or deaf to it. But because you know that you're the one responsible for you. And you don't have your stuff together enough anyway. And you shouldn't be wagging your finger at anyone. John LaRue said this, if you're not the worst sinner you know, you probably don't know yourself very well. You know when you are growing, when your sin bothers you more than anyone else's. And it also shows us this. We are more interested in being personally pure than fighting systems of injustice. And I don't mean any one particular system of injustice. There's lots of them. But think about it. As God's people, what really bothers us is the people who have different uh, sexual ethics than we do or have different use of money than we do or uh, make different choices uh, about what's right and wrong and what's good than we do. And we feel better because of our personal purity than we are bothered by that we live in a world of wrecked ethics. Are we more interested in being personally pure than fighting systems of injustice? The Bible goes commentless on her personal purity and gives a scathing critique of the culture that Judah is living in and perpetuating. So even though the story will go on, even though there's, despite personal moral failures, the story will go on despite institutional, cultural impossibilities. Look, let alone, listen, verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, his sheep sharers, and he and his friend Hira, this is the guy I mentioned earlier, in verse 1 and 2, Hira the Adamite, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her wedding gar widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. She finally gets it. She knows that this is a lie. I'm going to die alone and unprotected because now there is a third son who I've been told is all mine and he's grown up and moved on. Judah lied to me to protect his own situation because he's blaming me for the death of his sons. He lied to me. Look at the kind of man that Judah was that she could count on calling him, count on him calling on a prostitute. So Judah is such a broken man that his daughter-in-law knows that if I'm here at this right time, he's going to hire a prostitute. That's how profoundly broken he is. She just knows. I mean, it's, it's sort of the text begs the question, why would that even work? I mean, why wouldn't she think, oh, I don't know, he's such a righteous guy. I, of course he's not there to get a prostitute. She's like, if I'm at the, there at the right time, I'll get him. He's that profoundly broken. So she takes off her clothes, covers herself with a veil, sits down at the entrance, and she does just what she intends to do, to get herself an heir, to get herself justice. He hires her. 
And then he impregnates her. And after she's impregnated, she disappears. She has her heir. She has done rightly. She has done what was just in the sense that she is supposed to carry on the heir and she's supposed to do that because someone has provided someone to give her that heir. And so finally, we, when she confronts him, she's, being, she's about to be killed. So all he can see is her sin. Take her out and burn her. She's immoral. Take her out and burn her. It's her sin. When she confronts him, She says, do you recognize these things? Do you recognize these? And then Judah says, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. He knows why he's in trouble. He knows exactly what he did wrong. He didn't carry on the air. He did whatever he wanted. He hid his son from her, which was her right. He knows what he did wrong. And it's interesting. He says, she is more righteous than I. She's more righteous? It sounds like a shady story, but that's exactly what he says, and God lets it stand in Scripture because the point is, she went after justice that I wouldn't give her. The justice is on the side of her, not on the side of me. And it says, and he did not sleep with her again. You see, in this moment, we just have just a glimmer, a glimmer of the changing, the transformation of Judah. Judah, who's been this creepy, selfish, wicked man who's so full of hate, he finally gets a chance to burn his daughter-in-law and he's excited about it. And he gets the conviction that she acted justly and he didn't, and he finally sees a little conviction and said, she's more righteous than I. She's paying more attention than I'm paying attention. She's more committed to this God than I am. And he did not sleep with her again. Sorry, my mic's being funny. I want you to see this. When um, Judah and... I'll switch to this one, Kyle. Well, it sounds like me. Okay. Um, sorry, y'all. Um, she's more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her back to my son, Sheila. And he finally gets a little bit of conviction. And here's what I want to say to you in this and we'll keep moving. Judah finally gets humble pie. He's been wicked. And he finally gets a little bit of glimmer of hope. And so despite this wicked man, there's some hope for him. And that's supposed to encourage you and me because we're wicked. We're broken. Despite all of our efforts to act like we have it together, we're wicked and we're broken and we'll do unforgettable and seemingly unforgivable things. There's hope for people like Judah like you and for me, Judah changes. In just a few chapters, Judah, you know, his brothers and Judah sold Joseph into slavery. 
And then when they get in a bind and there's a famine, they go to Egypt and confront Joseph and they don't see that it's Joseph. Even though he's higher than Pharaoh, he's, he's one of the highest rulers in all of Egypt, they don't recognize him. And Joseph's sort of testing whether there's any goodness left in his brothers at all after they've done this to him. And Joseph says, you leave me Benjamin here and you go home and get my dad. That's how I'll know. And he's not telling him that it's his dad. He says, go home and get your dad. And Jacob, out of love for Benjamin, says this. So, excuse me, Judah says this. Then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to you. Don't be angry, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father. And there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Take me instead, essentially is what Judah says. So this little bit of conviction for this wicked man, God can work through until Judah is laying down his own life for his brother and his dad just a few chapters later. God can work through broken systems to bring about his will. God can work through broken people to transform them and still bring about his will. And then here's the last one I want you to see. When the time came for her, her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist. This one came out first. So when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, this is how you have broken out. And his name was Perez. And then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zerah. In Matthew 1, it says this. Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose name, whose mother's name was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. The point of it is, is that Jesus puts Tamar in the line to dignify her. That, Judah, that Jesus puts Judah, this rascal who has done whatever he wanted, in the line to show that Jesus came for people like Judah, who are a mess, and for outsiders. We'll close here. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Revelation 5. It's sort of the end of all things and the beginning of all things. And it's the scene where John is, is seeing whether or not the scroll of the nations will be opened. And in other words, what it's saying is, is that can anyone make sense out of all of this mess that has taken place? All of this mess the world history, all the brokenness, all the Judas of the world. Can anyone make sense of this? And no one steps forward to open the scroll. And so John says, I wept and I wept. And one of the elders turns to John and says, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is a sense where you'd go, God, why not put that ugly stuff in the closet? Like, come on. We're in the last moments of Revelation. Take those embarrassing stories of Judah and Tamar and tuck them away. And God is saying, I'm not embarrassed of the story. I'm not embarrassed of these people. I came for these people. I'm not embarrassed of them. God came for people like Judah and came for people like you and me. Let's pray.
Father, would you by your spirit work powerfully? Would you help us to be a people that fight systemic brokenness more than champions our own personal purity? Would you cause us to be a people that are so changed we can go from wanting someone burned to putting our own life in danger for the sake of others? Would you cause us to be the kind of people who instead of being beaten down by our shame, actually lift our heads and are grateful for our shame because it led us to our King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the sake of others. Would you cause us to be the kind of people who instead of being beaten down by our shame, actually lift our heads and are grateful for our shame because it led us to our King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.